Um, I have been uh, this summer um, conducting a series of sermons on the sacraments. Uh, the assumption is, is that as we look at the sacraments, we look at the um, essential things of the Christian faith, and it's a good thing to do in a transitional period. It is often said that if you have a table and a font and a pulpit, you have a church, no matter what they look like. And they may not look like much, but you have a church if you have a table and a font and a pulpit. And so thank you for putting up with this series. You weren't asked, but, um, but uh, thank you anyway. I'm uh, exploring some ideas about baptism that I think or I hope are, are, are significant for the Christian faith and for our formation. And these two texts today are, are classic for baptism. The first from Galatians chapter 3 uh, and the uh, verse 28, which is for some people the high water mark of Paul's thinking about the world. And then the second one, words that are often used in baptism, Romans chapter 6. Now, admittedly, Paul is not the easiest uh, person to read in worship, so I invite you to follow along in the uh, text in, in your uh, bulletin. Uh, we're catching this in the middle of an argument, and that makes it even more difficult in some ways to understand, but uh, we'll, we'll do our best in getting through this text. I will be reading from Romans 6, 1 through 14. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death and therefore were buried with him by baptism into death? So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey their desires. No longer present yourselves as, uh, as, uh, uh, to, as your members to sin, but as instruments of unrighteousness. And that word should also be translated, can, should, injustice, means the same thing. 
But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness, justice. For sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are no longer under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned to you, many of us are reading um, Robin Kimmerer's remarkable book, Braiding Sweetgrass. She is a um, Native American, Potawatomi, citizen Potawatomi nation. Um, and she's also a scientist. The remarkable wisdom that comes out of that book, and, and none more so than when she talks about language, learning the language. She recounts a story of a great grandmother who um, was elderly on a walker, and she was teaching the Potawatomi language. And she pushed herself with her walker against the microphone and said, the Potawatomi language is more than words. It's a culture. It's a way of life. The grandmother is one of nine people that currently know the language. The language, as we know, has, had been uh, virtually wiped out by the uh, government schools in the 19th and early 20th century, along with 350 other native languages. They were considered savage language. Uh, any child in these schools who spoke the language had their mouths washed out, sometimes with, with lye, with soap, with lye in it. It was severe, it was punishment for speaking the language. Horrible thing. Nine people currently know the language, and the youngest of them is 75 years old. So Robin Kimmerer is taking upon herself to learn the language. It's been hard. Post-it notes, she says, were all over her house trying to uh, get the language of it. But she had a, an electric awakening, and she describes it as electric when she realized that part of her struggles in learning the language is that Potawatomi language is 70% verbs. Now think about that. English is only 30% verbs. The rest of it's nouns. According to Robin Kimmerer, perhaps it's because in English we're obsessed with things. But it's verbs. For example, water is not a noun in Potawatomi. It's, as I said, at the baptismal font. It's a verb. It's living. It's in deep relationship to what's in the water, what's around the water. It's in deep relationship to all of us. It's like a relative. It's animated. She says it's the grammar of animacy. Isn't that a powerful notion? I want to try to um, suggest to you this morning that baptism is like that. It's the language of animacy. It's animate. It's not a thing. It's not a noun. It's a verb. It's a process. 
It's something that may happen to us once, and it should only happen to us once, because as we believe in the Presbyterian Church and in most mainline churches, God's unconditional love does not need to be expressed twice, but we ought to renew our baptism, perhaps even every day, perhaps even every moment of every day, because it is the animating force in our lives. Now, this classic text from Paul, uh, Romans 6, uh, the, the metaphors that are used here are, uh, speak to this. They're, they're animating metaphors. Let me just throw a few out again for your attention. Do you not know, says Paul, that all of us who were baptized in Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Into his death. We're in Christ, baptized into his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we might also walk in the newness of life. So, Death has already happened. It's, it's gone in Christ. What is, what is before us is the newness of life. It's resurrection and life. And he says it. The old self was crucified. And that's an explosive thing to say to the Roman Christians under Caesar's nose. The very one who authorized the crucifixion of Jesus. Now think about that for a second. That's politically explosive stuff to say. The old self was crucified so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. If we died with Christ, we also believe we will live with him, being raised from death, never to die again. Death no longer has its dominion over, over him and us because we're in him. The life he lives, he lives to God. Now again, this is all said under Caesar's nose. Paul knows all too well the kind of world that Caesar has created. It's a world that crucifies opposition. It's the world that, that crucifies all that is not Caesar, in a sense, you see. And Paul knows this very, very well. This is what you would call, in, in the language of, 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 of some New Testament scholars, call it apocalyptic language. It's apocalyptic. Um, it has to do with... Both revelation, the Greek word apocalypse, apocalypto, can mean revelation. I think better, I think that's a little bit too domesticated of a translation. It can mean to unmask, to expose, to disrupt. And that's what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus did. It disrupted the principalities of powers in the world. That's what it did. It disrupted them. It said it's not the way of God. The way of God is other than this. And so, so apocalyptic talks in big, big terms of, a, of, a, of, a, of an old age and a new age. The old age is behind us. That's the age of the death-tending stuff of the world. The age of life and living and the new creation is before us. And that's what we're invited to live into. But the, the old stuff is still stuck to us. So there's an already and not yet process to this whole thing. And this is where we are, my friends. We're, we're, we're living with this stuff that's stuck to us, <laughs> kind of baked into us, if you will. And, and we're being invited to lean into something new and, 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 and brilliant and abundant and life-giving. But the death-tending stuff certainly seems really real, doesn't it? Gun violence, yet again this week in our own city. Cancellation of graduations. My Lord. When will it end? When will it end? And we all know that it's the tip of the iceberg. You know, we live in a very violent culture, don't we? 
seems to me. Um, really interesting, just a couple of articles, opinion pieces, in the Washington Post and the New York Times, uh, decrying the new emphasis on masculinity. Have you seen some of this stuff? Um, yes, there is such a thing. I mean, it's as if we needed such a thing, a new emphasis on masculinity. A senator from my state, Missouri, wrote a book called Manhood. And evidently, um, he thinks that we're not competitive enough, not aggressive enough, we're not manly enough. What do you think? <laughs> um, I've always thought the worst thing you could do is to tell a male to be more male. But I don't know. In a culture that celebrates a sport, lifts up the most popular sport in America where males get on the field and beat the bejesus out of each other? And that just doesn't happen in the fall. It goes on in the wintertime. I mean, my wife came in just the other day and, 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 and the Canadian football league was playing football and in my brain dead state, I was watching this stuff. And she said, is that really going on? That's live football and it's June? And by the way, if you want to turn to that, and, and you know, I do channel surf, we watch TV, I confess it. Um, if, you, if, you, if you want to look at the NFL channel, they, they will actually replay old NFL games. And the only reason they do that is because they think we want to see this stuff. <laughs> and you can watch in slow motion uh, men pulverizing each other. Isn't this nice? This, is this helpful? I'm not against sports, please. But we are a violent culture, aren't we? I do do brain-dead things at, uh, in, in the evening, and yes, I do channel uh, surf. I mean, Francis uh, 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 finds movies for us that are just uplifting and wonderful, often in foreign languages, and it's just, you know, and I, so, you know, uh, I have to read uh, subtitles, and that's fine, you know, I can do that. I have to stop occasionally and say, okay, what's going on? But, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing, and I, my spirits are always lifted up by it, but when it's over, I'm often tired, and I, and I, and I, and I get into this brain-dead state and start channel surfing, and it's just a terrible thing. My mind is telling me, go practice the guitar. <laughs> but my body is just telling me, just keep, just keep searching. Came across a documentary on old westerns. And this was nostalgic. I mean, the old west is my part of the country, you know. I mean, we, we lived the old west. And they did a segment on Gunsmoke. Do you remember Gunsmoke? I I'm, would be embarrassed to ask the question, how many remember Gunsmoke? I mean, how many remember Gunsmoke? You remember Gunsmoke? Yeah. If you don't remember Gunsmoke, the title tells you everything you need to know about the show. Longest running show on TV. And they interviewed James Arnaz, the person who played Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke. And in the interview, he said, what I liked about the show is that Matt Dillon didn't kill anybody unless he had to. Now, let's exegete had to. Huh? Is this part of the American culture that goes deep inside of us? We get an ideology of had to? And we combine that with the ideology of racism, homophobia, consumerism. There's a lot of had to in our culture. There's a lot of had to violence. 
Gun violence is the tip of the iceberg, my friends. I don't know if you've seen the uh, book. Some of you have read it. Um, have, uh, I pointed it out to me by um, Kristen Dumay, Jesus and John Wayne. Evidently, for some Christians, um, Jesus appears kind of like a wuss who took a beating. Seriously, that's what, that's what some people say. In fact, there's a, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a preacher who once said, Jesus did not wear hairspray, <laughs> which is true, by the way. <laughs> Probably the only true thing that person said, but I mean, it's true. But the gist of it is, is there's a creation, the creation of kind of a superhero, excuse me for the language, but a kick-ass superhero that is a manly man making this out of Jesus. There was a, 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 a critical book that was read, that was written back in 1983 by Rosemary Radford Ruther entitled Jesus, I mean, God and uh, Sexism and God Talk is the name of the book. Sexism and God Talk. And in that book, there is the mo- one of the more provocative chapters I've ever read. And I read this in, in the mid, mid-80s and it kind of changed my life. She asked the question, can a male savior save women? That's the question she asked. It's a very provocative essay. But let me say, 40 years later, the question I have is, can the male savior of American culture save anybody? That's the question I think that's before us. Paul knew all this violence. You see, the Romans created this stuff. They had their own games. It was the Colosseum. It was not just in Rome, it was in all the colonies. And they tried to reproduce the Roman hierarchy everywhere they went. They were very shrewd about the way they did this. They put everybody but the lowest of the lowly in the Colosseum and they gave them a seat and they co-opted them into that reality. And people were not just slaughtered on on the field, They they, 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 they were fighting animals and they were torn asunder in the field. It was an incredibly violent thing. Paul knew that. I don't know if he saw it, but he knew it. And it was in the midst of this that he makes this stunning, stunning statement that if you are baptized, there is no longer male or female, there's no longer Jew or Greek, there's no longer slave or free. Um, 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 Racial hierarchies are all broken down. Gendered hierarchies are broken down. Racial hierarchies are broken down. Brigitte Call, a very fine scholar of Paul, says that in this text, what she's saying is in the waters of baptism, this stuff is washed away. It's washed away. It cleanses us. It frees us. It unfreezes the binaries of us versus them. It unfreezes that violence so that we can live into a mutuality, what she calls the politics of love. We can find one another in the other, retrieve ourselves in one another, in mutuality, in caring, in pursuing justice for the least of us. That's what Paul is arguing about in this passage. It's a profound and deep and pervasive thing that Paul is calling us to. He's calling us, he's calling us in essence to shed that death-tending stuff that's hanging on to us and live into the sheer livingness of God that is right in front of us. 
Do you know why our baptismal font is eight-sided? There's a story. It's an um, ancient Jewish story, and the story is, is that uh, uh, the Jewish people believe that, uh, that after Sabbath, one day they would wake up, and on the eighth day, they called it the eighth day, that creation would be fulfilled. And it was the eighth day of creation the Messiah would come. Christians picked this up. And they picked it up with resurrection. They called resurrection the eighth day of creation. And that's what we do every Sunday. We celebrate resurrection, which cannot be contained by the violence of the world. It cannot be contained by the weak. It cannot be contained in all of our systems and all of our ideologies. It moves above it and yet seeks to transform us. And so that's why a lot of baptismal fonts are octagons. They're eight-sided, reminding us, reminding us, friends, to shed that death-tending stuff that sticks to us and live into the sheer abundance, the sheer livingness of God. Let us pray. Oh God, we have been summoned to live into your reality, to your very being. It is the reality of resurrection out of the death-tending stuff of our lives and our world, the violence therein, the exclusions therein, the ideologies of racism and sexism, homophobia, consumerism, and live into the reality that we are one with the other, that we, we live fully in and with others to create a life of mutuality, to create a life of justice, to create a life of love. Amen.